0: Let yourself get settled. Um, as we get ready to begin the, this evening for the um, Dharma talk, I actually have a question or two to ask you. Um, how many of you were here last Monday night for Lama Surya Das and, and myself? Well, at least half of, half of you. Um, after that Monday evening, I spoke with Surya a little bit um, and I thought it was kind of playful. I basically enjoyed it and I asked him if he enjoyed it and he said yes. But then I got some other feedback which was interesting. A couple of um, women came and spoke to me who are on staff here and I, who, who know Lama Surya Das and know that I respect him as a teacher and so forth. And um, we're talking about Monday night and they said, oh, that was awfully painful, wasn't it? And I said, oh, it was, because <laughs> I was kind of surprised to hear that. And they said, yeah, it was really painful for them to watch. There was this kind of repartee of making fun of one another, back and forth and so forth. Um, and it, it didn't to them it seemed like it was disrespectful and unfriendly in some ways and very disjointed. And so I called Surya Das, I was curious, and I asked him, I said, did you feel like you weren't respected as a teacher or that it was difficult for you? And he said, no, no, I had a good time, and I'm glad we had time together and so forth. Then I asked my wife about it. Um, And she said, oh, that's what you do with your brothers all the time. And and, um, she said, most of, uh, she said, myself and the other wives married to your brothers have a hard time when you guys do that. She said, the problem is that you think it's normal. (laughs) But then I began to reflect about it, and the women I was speaking to, we had this conversation together. Um, They were saying, well, maybe it's just a kind of male, you know, cultural locker room way of relating or something like that. And I, in fact, at the men's retreats that I've taught, especially for for young men and the ritual men's retreats with Michael Mead and Robert Bly and James Hillman and so forth, one of the things that we do, there's storytelling and poetry and um, chanting and certain initiation things, we have had at times um, contests between men. Um, and one of the... One of the contests that we had was an insult contest (laughs) where you would have teams and men would volunteer to get up and kind of insult the other person in a more witty and devastating way. (laughs) Anyway, what what I'm curious is how many other people found that it was uh, fractured, uncomfortable, didn't seem um, pleasant to you last week? I'm curious because clearly there were some. Thank you. I'm sure there were others among you who did because uh, I learned something when they, when they talk when uh, the the women that were on the staff talked to me about it I actually got a little bit embarrassed because I realized that it was quite unconscious it really is the way I have three brothers and in our family there's a kind of um, affection and repartee and wit and, and stuff that goes back and forth that does seem normal but I realized that um in the circumstance of presenting another teacher and trying to make uh, a welcoming space, he and I actually, Lama Das are quite good friends. Um, and so we do this, we kind of banter back and forth anyway. But that that isn't necessarily a very health, helpful way to do it. So just kind of reflecting about that. And then it leads me to want to read something to you um, as a follow-up. By the way, just as an aside, um, I re- respect Lama Das both as a teacher and as someone who, having done two of the um, three-year, three-month Tibetan training retreats, as well as 15 other years in India, probably has as much training as any Westerner that I know um, in all of the practices of Tibetan Buddhism. And in that way, his understanding Um, And what he can share, I feel, is a real gift. So if that didn't come across last week, it's very much true. So then that leads me to read this uh, to you, which is, um, some of you may have read this in other places, it's called The Very Short Sutra on the Meeting of the Buddha and the Goddess, um, composed by Rick Fields. Thus, it is once, The Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove at Ohi, walking without arriving anywhere or having any thought of arriving or not arriving. And lotuses shining with morning dew miraculously appeared under every step soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly, out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut inward-looking eyes, shining and shimmering like a rainbow or a spider's web, transparent as the dew on a lotus flower. The goddess appeared, quivering like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she was surely a she, as the Buddha could clearly see with his eye of discriminating awareness wisdom, was mostly red in color, though when the light shifted, she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long hair was deep blue, her two eyes fathomless pits of space, and her third eye a bloodshot ring of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus. "O oh goddess, why are you blocking my path? This is the dialogue between men and women. We are continuing here just thinking about that. Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere. (laughs) Now I'm not sure where to go. (laughs) You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heels like a bird darting away, but just a little ways away. Or you can come after me. This is my forest, too. You can't pretend I'm not here. With that, the Buddha sat, supple as a snake, solid as a rock beneath a bow tree that sprang full leaf to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. After years of arduous practice, at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality and now. Not so fast, Buddha. I am reality. The earth stood still. The oceans paused. The wind itself listened. A thousand arhats, bodhisattvas, and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in this conversation. (laughs) I know I take my life in my hands, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances. Light rays like sunbeams shot forth so bright that even Sariputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. And then they exchanged thoughts, and the illumination was as bright as a diamond candle. And then they exchanged mind, and there was a great silence as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies and clothes, and the Buddha arose as the goddess, and the goddess arose as the Buddha and so on, back and forth, for a 100,000 Mahakalpas. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. If you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this, the Buddha is the goddess. The goddess is the Buddha. And not only that, this, the Buddha is emptiness, and the goddess is bliss. The goddess is emptiness and the Buddha is bliss. And that is what and what not you are. It's true. So here comes the mantra of the goddess and the Buddha, the unsurpassed, non-dual mantra. Just to say this mantra, just to hear this mantra once, just to hear one word of this mantra once makes everything the way it truly is, okay. So here it is. Earth walker, sky walker, Hey, silent one. Hey, great talker. Not two, not one, not separate, not apart. This is the heart. Bliss is emptiness. Emptiness is bliss. Be your breath. Ah. Smile. Hey. And relax. Oh. And remember this you can't miss. And thus ends the very short sutra on the meeting of the Buddha and the Goddess. Some years back, I remember visiting Stephen Levine and Andrea. And I was in the midst of uh, a number of years of um, teaching Men's retreats, especially for young men, um, um, men from all different cultures and very diverse group, particularly the young men were from East Los Angeles and Watts and Oakland and Chicago and people who'd been in gangs and a whole variety of other men and kind of talking with Stephen about men's retreats and some of the um, learnings and the the grief that men shared and the willingness to learn from one another that happened as men came together. And in that conversation at that time, um, Stephen was um, skeptical about it. And he's another man who's a very close friend, and I respect him deeply as a teacher. But he was skeptical. Why do you have to do this men's stuff, or this women's stuff? In the end, if you listen, the Buddha is the goddess, and the goddess is the Buddha, and male and female are just concepts and why separate ourselves out by gender or by race or by whatever it happens to be when fundamentally underneath we're all the same?" And I said, yes, but, and had all of my arguments and we never really quite resolved it in that conversation. But as we were leaving and driving away, kind of reflecting about it, Liana, my wife and I, all of a sudden something became clear that most of the work that Stephen does or had done at that, around that time was with people who were dying. And when you're dying, you don't need a men's or a women's retreat because you're about to leave that identity as a particular embodiment of male or female. And then it's completely irrelevant and in a way distracting for the most part. But if you're in the middle of your journey, um, then it would appear there's a difference. (laughs) And um, (laughs) at that time, you have a different identity, at least tentatively. And that identity, too, needs to be understood in your role, in your place, and be respected. And one of the great sorrows that happened to the men who came to the, these first years, many years, of men's retreats when they arrived and we began to meet. First people were afraid. Men are actually afraid when they get together very often. It's surprising to see because men are dangerous, they realize, being one. right? Um, and part of the sorrow was that people would begin to say things like, I haven't actually sat and talked to other men like this. Um, since I was a boy, and we had sports and competition, or we had, um, you know, our corporation, and there was a different form of competition. Um, but to actually speak and listen in this way, um, a lot of the people got in touch with this deep sadness and longing and grief. All this, in a way, is a preface for the conversation in the talk this evening about identity itself. There's a line from the poet Rumi, who asks, who are you really wanderer? You take all these forms and all these lives, and we come and go, we're probably among the most traveled human beings that the earth has ever known. A good friend of mine did a thesis um, in, oh, 25 years ago or so, trying to discover what was it that really transformed people's lives, awakened them. And of course there was meditation and since it was back in the late 60s or early 70s there were psychedelics. You remember those things, right? And there was um, near-death experiences and, you know, maybe giving birth to a child. But the one that was the most frequent in people's lives of a shift of their being and their awareness was travel to a very different culture. Because all of a sudden the sights and sounds and smells and the way people look and touch or don't touch one another and the things that you hold and the color of the air um, and all of that changes and then all of a sudden you ask, well, who am I? And you start to realize how much we get fixed in a certain identity for a certain time. And because the work of meditation teaching um, entails quite a bit of travel, I'll go whether it's to Asia or Europe or various places, and then I come back and I look around and I say, well, who am I back here? I sort of let go of that role in some other place. Oh, right, I'm a storyteller or a teacher, I don't know what that is, somebody who speaks um, to groups of people. And I try to offer um, offer what is uh, what has really nourished or awakened my own heart through words. But it feels to me like I have a succession of lives, and not just one life, in different places, and different times. The Navajo teach their children that every morning when the sun comes up, it's a brand new sun. It's born each morning and lives for but one day, and in the evening it passes on, never to return. And so as soon as the children are old enough to understand, they say, this sun has only one day. You too must live this day with beauty in a good way, so that the sun and you both will not have wasted your precious light and your precious time. In the Buddhist teaching, it's said, when people ask about birth and death, that each moment is a rebirth, each moment we are born anew. And one of the central questions of all of Buddhist practice or spiritual practice is then to look into this question, this mystery of identity. Who am I? As a male, or a female, or um, an American, you know, or a, what, an Italian American, or an Irish American, or an African American, or Chinese American? Or what other identities one has as a, lover, or a husband, or a wife, or an employer, or an employee. All those different things. Remember that Hindu song that the babies sing in the womb? Please, dear God, do not let me forget who I am. And then the song changes just after birth. Oh dear, I've forgotten already. Whenever our life changes, we encounter again this mystery of our identity. Some places say, well, you are a spark of the divine. Then somebody asked the Lama Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, in Tibetan Buddhism, when you have rebirth from one life to another, if there's no self to be reborn, how does it happen? Buddhism speaks of selflessness or emptiness. What is it that's reborn if there's no self? He said, I'm sorry to say, it's mostly your bad habits. (laughs) But what is it to be incarnated and to feel that pattern, whether you call it habits or the patterns of uh, what we've learned in consciousness that repeat from day to day and week to week, from childhood to adulthood to old age? What is it to come into a body and take, consciousness in this human form. One of the really striking memories I have in looking at this question was when I went to swim with the dolphins. And holding on to their fins and being pulled around and there were these two wonderful dolphins. Maya was one and Melissa was the other with these huge dolphin eyes and incredibly playful Joyful spirits. It was like being with some great guru or something, and they'd come, and you could hold them, and they'd look at you, and it was it was as if this amazing consciousness was in this being, and they were willing to play with you for a while. Or I remember going to visit Michael and Coco, the gorillas that had been taught sign language, um, and when we went to see Coco, my daughter Caroline came along. Um, And we went up to meet Coco, one of the people that we knew very well was teaching Coco sign language. And we walked up to Coco's cage, and Coco signed hello. Um, And then she signed pretty flowers. I don't know the sign for pretty flowers, but she signed pretty flowers. And we looked around, and there weren't any flowers. And then all of a sudden, she signed pretty flowers and kind of pointed, realized that my daughter Caroline had a flower print dress with pretty flowers on it. And then we looked at her and said, whoa, so wh- who is this that we're talking to? You know? And it's pretty amazing. And then later, um, I took my daughter's school to the San Francisco Zoo because the, one of the uh, zoo keepers there who sits at Spirit Rock is the person who cares for the gorillas and chimps there. And she told all the kids, she said, when you go up to a gorilla, I mean, this is like some joke or something, right? But when you go up to a gorilla, Um, You can't look at him directly, that's considered impolite in gorilla language. (laughs) And you can't speak to him directly, that's impolite too. And so she said, come on, I'll tell you how to do it. And so all these little kids, we all went up to the gorilla's cage. Um, And mind you, scores and dozens of people were walking by, and the gorilla was completely uninterested, not, not noticing them at all. She said, you have to go up quietly and keep your eyes down a little bit, and then before you say anything, you have to <clears throat> kind of clear your throat like that, which is gorilla for I'm here, here, and would you you know, mind paying a little attention? So all these little kids came up very quietly, stooped over a little bit, politely, like the Dalai Lama does when he kind of walks in, right, with their eyes down a little, and they went <clears throat> and immediately Michael, or whatever the gorilla's name was, turned around. And looked at them, and then they started to speak to him. And she said that the gorilla didn't understand many words of English, a few. She said, but they were trying to learn the words of gorilla. Um, It seemed only fair that it should go two ways. Um, And she said she listened to the gorillas and the the chimps and various, and she said, and they have so many different sounds. She said, and one day there was an amazing thing that happened at the zoo, A, a blimp flew over the zoo low. So it was really visible. She said, and she heard them making a sound using a word that she had never heard before. <laughs> and there was this blimp. So they had their own word for this thing. <laughs> and then when, I guess it was um, Jane Goodall came to visit, um, there, were, there were gorillas who'd been born in the zoo. And then there were ones who'd been captured in the wild. Um, And Jane Goodall knew some of the gorilla words or sounds from that part of Africa. Um, And so she began to make those sounds. And their eyes opened wide, and they made the sounds back. And there was this whole dialogue. So how do we get in here? I mean, who's in there? Whether it's the gorilla or the dolphin, or, or us for a little while in this one. That's the question. Now, usually in our culture, we make our identity from what we do. You know, you meet somebody, you ask, what do you do? Oh, I'm a psychologist or I'm a computer program or I'm a whatever, as if that's who we are. As many of you know, in India, in general, one doesn't ask what you do. And I like to think that's because in a lot of India, people don't do anything, (laughs) which to me is not an insult, but actually it's a kind of praise. It's one of those places where people still know about being rather than just doing. But instead of asking, what do you do? The, a common question there would be, what form of God do you worship? Is it Shiva? You know, or Kali, or Krishna, or, or Vishnu, or Brahma? Imagine if you met people and instead of saying, what do you do? You ask, what's the form of the divine that you worship in your life? You might actually know more about them from that question. Hmm. This from uh, the Buddha. Some children were playing beside a river. They made castles of sand and each child defended his castle and said, this one is mine." They kept their castles separate and would not allow any mistakes about whose was whose. And when the castles were all finished, one child kicked over another's and destroyed it. And the owner of the castle flew into a rage and pulled the other child's hair and struck him and got some friends and said, he spoiled mine, come along and let, let us punish him. And the others came to his help and they destroyed hit the other castle. And then each one said, this is mine, no one may have it, keep away, don't touch my castle. But then evening came, it was getting dark and they all thought it was time to be going home. And now no one cared what became of their castle. One child stamped on his, another pushed his over, the waves from the river, pulled another down to the water, and they turned away and went back each to their home. It's really a reminder of the castles that we have, which are temporary. It's true, isn't it? All the kinds of castles, all the things that we might create. Ancient Mayan poetry. If I were to lead you into the depths of the temple, If I were to ask you which of these bones were which king, what could you reply? You would say, I know not, for the greatest and the least are confounded in common clay, and the blackness of the tomb is the sun's womb, and the dark night shines with bright stars. We are thus. Part of what makes meditation so extraordinary And different from most activities is that simply to sit is to step out of our identity, our busyness, our roles. And certainly as one begins to sit, there's a making of peace, there's a healing that can take place, an opening of the heart, an offering of prayers. But then as we begin to listen, we hear the stories that we tell, of ourselves, who we think we are. The victim, or the warrior, you know, or the workaholic, or the nurturer, or the lost soul, or the great mother. You know all those stories. The identities that we might take. Yet mindfulness or awareness, this quality of attention, creates a space for the heart to live and listen even deeper than that, to remember who we really are, beneath, beyond all of these stories, to reconnect with that which is timeless, even in the face of birth and death. So we sit and we practice, paying attention, breath comes and goes, body sensations, feelings, and moods, and so forth. And there's an opening. The armor of the body begins to release. If you sit in meditation, the places that we've held, the contractions begin to soften. The moods, the sorrows, the regrets, the longings, the creativity, the love, all rise, and express themselves. The fear, the guilt, and grudges, and hopes, and visions and imagination. And we see all these things, but if we listen deeper, we realize that's not who we are either. This, what's called the body of fear, the small sense of self, begins to open. From the alchemical tradition, Hermes Trismegistus. Perceive that you are not yet born, that you are in the womb, That you are young, that you are old, that you have died, that you are in the world beyond the grave. Grasp all these at once, all times and places, from before birth through life till afterward. And then you can begin to see with the eye of the divine. So we sit and we begin to pay attention to all the stories, all the energies, as if we could bow to each one, allowing each to rise and fall. And then something else begins to show itself. Thomas Merton put it this way. And then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts the depths where neither sin nor desire can reach, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more reason for war or hatred or cruelty. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. To sit in meditation is to ask this question, who am I underneath all this? What is this life that I've been given? To step out of the body of fear to something greater. You know the body of fear, all its thoughts and imaginings. As the Ojibwe Indians have said, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And if we sit and become quiet and still and listen after some initial opening and letting go, we begin to feel that the breath breathes itself. The thoughts think themselves, the stories tell themselves, and they all arise in the space of being alive. Aware, a kind of great mystery. It is such a strange thing to be in a human body. You know, it is this one hole at this end in which we stuff dead plants and animals, right? <laughs> With the bones that hang down that mush it them up, right? And kind of all this oops, we water it and then push it down through the tube, and the little patches of fur that we have left compared to, you know, those gorillas and chimps and things like that. No tail, or at least very little bit of a tail left. Um, The way we um, speak, I mean, here's this hole, and we force air out of it and do strange things with our mouth and our throat and say words like elephant, you know, and those vibrations rattle the bones and the drum in your ear. There's a drum in your ear, and then somehow it makes, you know, electrochemical changes in the nerve patterns that go to the auditory portion of your brain. And I say elephant, pink elephant, picture it, right? And you can. Phenomenal. I mean, it is bizarre, isn't it? Or eyes. I mean, eyes are the weirdest thing. They are. I've been collecting stories for this new book. And a friend of mine who went to India just kind of on a lark many years ago um, ended up in the mountains because she was interested a little bit in in the Tibetan culture. She started to study Tibetan Buddhism and so forth, but she didn't really believe much of it. And one day she was invited to this fire puja. She said she walked way up into this Himalayan valley with some people that took her there. And there in the... You know, wilds of the mountains in this valley was um, a group of about twenty-five old lamas sitting in a circle with a huge fire in the middle that they were pouring butter in and and, um, making all these wonderful mudras and saying prayers and blessings. And surrounding this big fire, where they were pouring the ghee and butter and making their offerings and chants, was a whole circle of birds that had come down from the mountains, that were in a circle around them, facing toward the fire and just listening. And she said, I walked into that circle in the Himalayas with the birds around the llamas and the butter being poured in these strange chants. And she said, anything I ever imagined about what was supposed to happen in this world just stopped and I realized that the world is far more extraordinary than we ever let ourselves think. Now, my good friend Roger Walsh, who has an M.D. and a Ph.D., taught at Stanford for a while in psychiatry and medicine and all these other things, and who's a scholar of world religions, among many things, author of a lot of books, he sat down some years ago trying to understand things with his mind, poor Roger. And he he decided to read through the Encyclopedia of World Religions, which is quite a number of volumes, to try to understand this stuff we're doing better. And so he read, you know, starting from Aztecs and going to Zoroastrianism. Um, And each one was a religion that had millions of followers, over hundreds of years. And each of those religions had a story about the world, how it came into being, how good and evil related, some form of redemption that people could follow. Oftentimes there were similarities, but many of them were quite in conflict with one another as well. But each one was quite believable. And so after he read all that, I said, Roger, can you give me a summary? Because <laughs> I'm not going to read it. You know, what did you find in reading through all of that? And he said, what I saw, here were a hundred different religions with millions of people all believing them. I saw that those religious traditions, every one of them, was a, set, was a story, a set of words and concepts that we place on this mystery of life to make ourselves feel a little more comfortable and safe and at peace. It's a filter, but the mystery itself is something beyond all of those systems. To meditate is to be invited into that mystery, moment by moment, the mystery of the breath, the mystery of the feelings that move like the weather changes in San Francisco. The mystery of thoughts that create and disappear into nothing. And the mystery of that true nature, that one who sits and watches it all, and feels it all, and senses it all, and, you know, is born into this incarnation, and that moment, and believes we're this for a while, and that, and then it disappears. Meditation opens us to that mystery. My teacher Nisargadot, in India, this old Indian guru, said, you identify with everything so easily. Whatever you think you are, you take that to be true. A man or a woman or a, you know, um, whatever your work is, a, a, a lawyer or a gardener or an artist and so forth. The habit of imagining yourself as being something, as perceivable and describable, is very strong with you. I find this impossible. The understanding that I am not this and not that is the ground of my being. Wisdom says I am nothing. Love says I am everything. Between these two my life flows. And then in sitting with him he would look you in the eye and ask you the question, who are you really? It's an amazing question to be asked, especially if someone does look you in the eye, and especially if that someone doesn't think that they're any of these normal things. And you begin to say, well, I'm an American, or you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm this, this many years old, or I'm a man, or I'm a father, or so forth. And you get those answers out. It takes about just a minute or two. And they'll say, well, who are you really? Underneath all of that. And when you say, finally, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm not all those things. that he says, you take these things to be who you are. I, the understanding that I'm not this or not that, is the ground of my being. Then you come to rest. You rest in that place of being that's not being something. A place of trust. And it's always here for us, always. Now, you may ask, how is this helpful in some practical way? (laughs) You know, I've told this story, so I won't do it in detail, about the woman who came to see me when I was working as a psychologist who was in the middle of a painful divorce and had a young daughter and whose husband left her just at the time, daughter was three or four years old, um, just at the age when this woman's own father had left when she was a three or four year old girl. We did all this healing work and finally went back inside at the end of a lot of work of healing over a long period of time to that pain of standing in the scene where father's going out the door with a suitcase and doesn't even turn back to say goodbye and never returns. She's weeping and feeling like no one, he doesn't love me and I'm unlovable and after that by telling that story i'm lovable unlovable every other relationship in her life i'm unlovable followed that pattern and there she is finally back in that place feeling my father's leaving tremendous pain and grief and he's going out the door and then i asked if she could get into his body for a moment and she felt his body instead of her own she said oh my god it's rigid and frightened and angry. And I said, well, what's his problem? She said, he's in the wrong marriage. He feels like he's dying if he stays here. Even another day, he's going to lose his life. It's, the, it's, the, it's, um, it's terrible. Well, he has to escape. And I said, does he know that you're at the top of the stairs? Oh, yeah, he knows I'm looking. Well, why doesn't he turn and say he loves you? or goodbye or anything. And she began to weep. And she said, because if I look up once and see my daughter, even for a moment, I couldn't possibly leave. And I have to to save my life. It's the only way I can survive. And I run out the door. And so she's standing there. Again, I say, go back and be the child. She feels this, and I said, so what's the story this child made up? No one could ever love me. I'm unlovable. It's my fault. And then I asked, well, is it true? No, it's not true. She was born into this situation with these parents, very painful, and created an identity that lasted through a good part of her life. And then at one point, looked into the question, is this who you really are? There was a man on this retreat that just ended in this room um, a few days ago who also had a history of grave um, suffering both in childhood and, and in the military, various things and he'd spent some years doing healing and finally he came in one day to an interview and he looked at me and he said, I'm done. And I said, done what? And he said, I'm done with all this healing stuff. He said, it doesn't mean that it's not going to still hurt and that I'm not going to still remember it. He said, but this morning I was taking a walk after sitting in meditation and walking and sitting and walking for all these weeks and the sky was blue, the rainstorm had stopped and I felt myself breathing and took a step and I felt like I was born new again and I realized I didn't have to be that person who had suffered so much anymore, and I'm done." And that was worth six weeks of retreat, of sitting in interviews to hear that one interview. It was so beautiful. It was really a moment of liberation. As this woman saw, this space opened, and she began to see her mind contained her father, and her mother, and their parents, and herself, and the stories, and all the possibilities, because it does. And beyond that, this great space of openness, of peace, of rest. A poem from Zen master Isa that's about, oh, well over a 1,500 years old. He wrote, In these latter-day degenerate times, cherry blossoms everywhere. It's a spring poem. So you think things are bad now, and they may be. This is Isa. In these latter-day degenerate times, cherry blossoms everywhere. There is, there is the sufferings of the world, and they need to be tended to and remembered. But there also is something that is so true. From where we were all born, the ground of being and we know it and we're on our way back in each moment of meditation and each moment of the spring blossoms that we let in anybody who's had a near-death experience knows it you kind of get back from that and you say wow that was incredible I almost died and then I look back and I said that was an amazing life I just lived wasn't it and then I was given back that life It's important in all this not to confuse this openness, what the Buddhists speak of as selflessness or emptiness, not to confuse it with low self-esteem, some kind of depressed emptiness of the existential philosophers. It's all empty, it has no meaning. I remember the first year I was teaching, this person came to retreat And she she was practicing, and she was doing her walking meditation, and she said, I really understand emptiness. And I looked at her and I said, you do? She said, yeah, there's just nothing. I understand no self. And I looked at her, and she i had been working with her for, oh, ten days or something like that. She seemed sad and unkempt, um, and from all outward signs, rather deeply depressed. Um, And I said, how do you experience this Buddhist emptiness? And she said, well, whenever I walk or sit, it just all seems empty. And I said, I'm sorry, dear, but I think that's depression and not some great Buddhist insight. It's lack of being alive. Because in true emptiness, there's a vitality and a strength and an openness and a well-being. And if you meet people who are open, you know it when you meet them. There's a kind of life to them that's beautiful to feel and sense and know. And what's left when we let go of the small self, the body of fear, doesn't go away. You still have it. You have your personality, like your body. You're born into a body, and it's more or less your body. You know, and you got to deal with it. And it can be a certain shape, and have certain color fur, right? And certain color exterior. And if it's darker than a skin-colored crayon in this culture, you're in trouble, basically. Because there's this tremendous, bizarre, racist thing about people whose exterior color is darker than a skin-colored Crayola. I mean, isn't that weird? But it's also serious. I mean, so there are all these identities and so forth, but it's simply not who we are. You see all these things, and underneath them is our common, true nature. And when you rest in that, when you rest in that, then the other things are so, you have to deal with them, but you deal with them in a very different way. What's left is not imitation, and it's not the story, and it's not artificial, it's more like the Tao, as resilient as the water, as forgiving as the earth. We're just here and open to life. From the deepest place in our heart, we are connected. And there's a tremendous strength in it. A few years ago, my aunt, uh, who lives near Homestead, south of Miami, near, actually near where the Miami Zoo is, Aunt Ellen, who's now, as an artist, and she's, she's 90 years old, that big hurricane went through Miami. Remember that hurricane? And not only did it destroy Homestead and various things, it also destroyed the Miami Zoo, which is one of the great zoos of the world. And they were really afraid of what would happen at the zoo. So there were all these, you know, animals in their cages and the anemometer that showed the wind speed of the hurricane at the zoo broke at 200 miles an hour. That was the last reading it had. That's how strong the winds were. The zookeepers came back into the zoo. They took as many animals as they could, but they couldn't. They didn't have anywhere to take most of them. And they thought that the animals would be killed, would be shredded through the fences, basically. But when they went back in the rubble of the zoo and looked for the animals, except for the birds, who all got out pretty early and went south, but leaving those aside, almost all the other animals were there. They'd pull the rubble aside and pick up the broken fences and get the broken glass and bushes and things and look under there and these eyes would peek out. It's true. And almost all the animals were waiting. They were hungry, I guess. They were waiting to be fed. And they knew, something in them heard the great storm was coming. And without anybody explaining it any further than that, inside them, somehow, They knew what to do to care for themselves. And so do we. What happens to us when we ask and honor this question of identity and come back to something that's sacred or holy or deep in us, what's left is a great heart of compassion. The world is so tentative. It only arises in this form each day once. And we see it in that way. One great Buddhist text puts it this way. Now you know how to leave every thought and action entirely alone, neither cutting it off nor falling under its spell. And the world has become free for you. And now there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize the essence of their own hearts and minds. And you will spend your lives working for the sake of these others, but all your meditations have now cleansed away any idea that these others really exist as separate from yourselves. And what happens is that in this openness, if we sit even for a moment, we remember it, there comes the great heart of compassion. What else do you care about when you're really in touch inside? How well we love, how much we care for each moment and each being and each thing that lives. So on Gandhi's tomb it's written, before you act, Think of the poorest person that you have met in this world and ask yourself, will this act in the end be also a benefit to them? One begins to listen to what is beneficial, what is a blessing to all beings because there's less and less who I am as the small self and where I'm going and more and more a sense that we're all in it together. Our Buddha nature, our true nature. Underneath all the identity, the body of fear, the wounds, the sorrows, the stories, the love, the excitement, there is a ground of rest, of peace, original goodness, a pure heart, and there are a hundred ways to remember it. I tell one more story in a little poem to end. A friend of mine who is a teacher went to Tibet a few years ago, and um, it happened that he arrived at the Great Drepung Monastery um, during a festival time, and people nomads and pilgrims from all over Tibet were arriving there. And they had a whole week of um, chanting and ceremony and lama dancing and all kinds of extraordinary things. And then to end the festival, they had a night of chanting and pujas and prayers and so forth. And in the dark of the night, at about 3.30 or 4.00 night, the whole crowd from the monastery poured out of the monastery and went up on the mountain ridge opposite the monastery. And he just went along not knowing what was going to happen next. And they went to sit along the top of this mountain ridge facing the monastery. And then just as it was starting to get light, down the face of the monastery was rolled this huge tanka, this huge painting of a golden Buddha. that was like an acre in size, enormous. And as it rolled down, the great, oh, those great big Tibetan horns were blowing down through the valley and the cymbals were clashing and people were chanting. And as it reached the bottom, just at that moment, the sun came over the mountain ridge behind them and shone on to this huge, acre-sized, golden figure of the Buddha and illuminated in front of them. But also, it hit them from the back. And my friend was sitting there and he said, not only did the Buddha light up with gold, vast as you could imagine, but the moment that it lit up, you who were shivering this dark Tibetan night in the mountain, all of a sudden felt completely filled with warmth and joy from the sunlight. And he said it was a moment where he realized that this whole festival was simply a way to remind you that that golden Buddha, that beauty, was really who you are. I think I'll stop with that story. Forget the poem. Let's sit for a minute. A few announcements, one more little comment and then a, a chant to end. The announcements. Next week I'll be in Yucca Valley on retreat, so there will be a Burmese woman named um, Dr. Tin Tin, who's um, starting a small Buddhist center up in Sebastopol. That's, and she's really interested in living mindful practice in the midst of every part of daily life. This Saturday in San Francisco, Eugene Cash will lead a day-long Vipassana um, at the Unitarian Church, 9 to 4. Um, oh yes. When people leave tonight, um, a little bit of help we would request. The yellow plastic folding chairs go upstairs in the upper walking room at the far end in the closet. And the brown padded folding chairs go upstairs in the closet at the near end of the upper walking room. If some of you would take them up, that would be very helpful. The red-backed sort of purple-red chairs, the bigger ones, they stay in this room. Um, there was one little story I did want to ta- tell you, <laughs> which was in the talk, and I kind of skipped over it, but it's, it's kind of fun. There's a man who sits sometimes here on Monday night named Milton Friedman who um, is also, as you know, shares the same name as that very famous economist Milton Friedman. And this particular Milton Friedman worked for a long time in Washington. He was a speechwriter, I think, for Jimmy Carter. He worked as a congressional um, aide in, in the offices of a number of the key congressional committees and so forth. So he also was kind of high high-level person in Washington. Um, and he would often get confused with Milton Friedman, the great economist. Anyway, one day, he said his phone rang in his office and they, uh, he picked it up and they said, is this Milton Friedman? And he said, yes, it is. He said, well, I represent um, some part of the Catholic Church um, a, that uh, will be investing a great deal of our money and I, we would like to speak to you about some of the best ways to invest these billions of dollars. Um, and could we make some appointment?" And, and Milton said, um, he listened to that for a minute, and he said, "'Have you thought of giving it to the poor?' <laughs> and they were rather shocked at the other end of the line, this is a true story, and said to him, "'Are you the real Milton Friedman?' <laughs> to which he replied, "'Are you the real church?' I had to tell it. Anyway, there is something beside all those words, whether they're Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or Hindu or whatever, there's something much more immediate and real and we know it in our hearts. So the chant tonight is a very simple one. Um, It's a chant of loving-kindness and we'll do it for those who are ill and for those who've died. There's a Someone who came up to me in the break who wanted us to chant for Lynn, who died of suicide this past week, a man. Um, we'll chant for those in, Sarajevo, in um, Kosovo and Sarajevo and Bosnia and, and uh, Europe and North America and South America and Asia and Africa and the oceans and the skies. So we'll chant for a little bit, and then we'll go out into the spring evening. And each time we do the chant, which is a chant of loving-kindness, you can bring into your heart the image of those that you offer your blessings to. (laughs) Sabe sata sukito Sabe sata sukito, all beings. Sabe sata sukito, far and near. Sabe sata sukito, male and female. Sabe sata sukito, humans and animals. Sabe sata sukito, those who are suffering. Sabe sata sukito, those who are causing suffering. Sabe sata sukito, those who are happy. Sabe sata sukito, those who are causing happiness. Sabe sata sukito, beings in all directions. Sabe sata sukito, our loved ones. Sabe sata sukito, our communities. Sabe sata sukito, everyone's loved ones. Sabe sata sukito. All beings everywhere. Sabe sukito, be peaceful. Sabe sukito, held in loving kindness. Sabe sata sukito, and free. Sabe sata sukito, three more times. Sabe Sata Sukito Sabe Sata Sukito Sabe Sata Sukito May your week be filled with blessings and may you share those with every being in every strange form that you meet. Thank you, what a pleasure.